Listen, there's a reason the ultra-wealthy have been investing in fine wine for centuries. Historically stable returns and a lack of volatility make it stand out compared to traditional assets, especially during a downturn. But now you can invest alongside with them with Vint. Vint is an SEC-qualified investment platform that offers shares of the most sought-after wines in the world. So join the thousands of investors diversifying with fine wine and spirits. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another edition of Around the Coin, the premier podcast for all things banking, payments, and fintech. Here are your hosts, Mike Townsend, Brian Romley, and Faisal Khan. All right, everyone, here we are in another episode of Around the Coin. We have the three amigos uh, for an exciting episode, Brian, Faisal, and myself, Mike, here. How are you guys both doing? Good morning. How are you doing? Oh, it's great. We had such a great pre-show conversation that just got me so fired up to go through these topics and talk to you guys for the next... 45 minutes. Um, how do you want to start? Do you want to dive right in, guys? Anything you want to say off the bat? So uh, I want to say great. that Faisal is, a, is an amazing business mind. Let me just tell you that. He's got some stuff cooking in the kitchen. So <laughs> I'm on record. Yeah, but we can't talk about it right now, right? Very quiet. Very quiet. Mom, mom's the word. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, so let's get started with Braintree. 154 million cards on file. Brian, Mike, your take. Wow. Well, I think it's absolutely amazing news. Uh, Bill Reddy, uh, Braintree's um, CEO for the PayPal acquisition, and now pretty high-ranking executive. I think he's on to bigger things within PayPal. In either case, wrote a pod. Uh, sorry, wrote a uh, blog about the growth of Braintree since they were acquired. And it is just an amazing story. I, in and of itself, uh, I see PayPal as a holding company of a number of really great properties, Braintree, Venmo, etc. And within Braintree, this information, 154 million cards on file, puts them in the top five of cards on file, pretty much beating out any of their closest competitors by a, a fairly large margin. Everybody asks me, what is the reason for cards on file even people deeply encrusted in within payments well what i say is it pretends to a future and a lot of that future has to do with how future transactions can uh transpire in either case it's a huge milestone congratulations i mean they're approaching 50 billion dollars on braintree which is um, um quite amazing so i think it's good news for them what do you think mike well, I'm actually just looking at the article now, and I'm wondering how PayPal increases the value of someone like Braintree or Venmo by by aggregating them together. You know, is there, are they essentially just just aggregating the growth and then and then prospering off that, or are they doing something collectively that makes uh, you know Venmo, Braintree, PayPal um, more profitable co- together than they were if they would be separate? 
Uh, I, I don't know if the answer is completely clear yet, but I have to imagine it, it, yeah. it must be. Well, I think there's I think economies in scale, right? The, the, the yeah. back office would all sort of merge together eventually, so they'll have less compliance costs, less regulatory costs, et cetera, et cetera. So I Absolutely. Think I, I, and, and, you know, I, I think they're always destined to have something, uh, something, you know, where you might have, you know, we're considering separate business entities, ultimately synergizing into at least some common element. I mean, I see Venmo and Zoom being uh, a complementary, obviously. Mm-hmm. I see Braintree and PayPal's um, uh, gateway being complementary at some point. So do you think... Now, this, the fact you, that they're independent is good. Do you think that there's, yeah. this could almost be a uh, misnomer in a way? Because one line here that's a little uh, <laughs> interesting is that while Braintree now handles payment processing for many PayPal services too, the company says that the $50 billion is like a like-for-like like comparison in terms of what it's measuring. So I'm wondering if because they were bought by PayPal, they immediately got a ton of new cards on file and business and, uh, and processing... Well, well, you know, my understanding, and again, I, I, I'm not, you know, that close to the data, but my understanding from people who are is that the data is standalone. It is uh, within Braintree's own uh, wheelhouse. Now, some of that comes from PayPal, sure, but it's not taking away from, you know, the growth that we see at Braintree. Uh, you know, so at the end of the day, this is what happens. You can conflate the two numbers when you have a holding company sort of environment. But I think it speaks volumes just on its own. Yeah, I, I agree. you, Faisal? Yeah, they've also quadrupled their pay years. You know, that, that's, that's a pretty big jump. And, uh, you know, I, I guess having their association with uh, PayPal would have bought some uh, pretty large processors and clients onto them. So, you know, I mean, it, it says that, you know, the new uh, companies that they have is FanDuel, Jet.com, One Kings Lane, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Is there any? Let me ask you this, Absolutely. Brian. Is there any uh, uh, sharing of technology? Like when they when PayPal brought on Braintree, did they rip out something underneath the hood for processing that they now use Braintree for, or did PayPal just literally build all the things that Braintree has, uh, but market it differently? Well, it's a combination of both. Whenever you have legacy code and legacy products, they're going to be companies and people, customers that are not going to want to break away from those legacy products. So typically what happens in this type of scenario, if it's a, an acquisition like Braintree, they're going to keep it as a wholly running operation unless there's some degradation in the customer acquisition of that you know new company. So what I see going on is Braintree is continuing uh, their innovation cycle. If anything, they've accelerated that. The PayPal One sort of scenario, we might talk about that a little later with uh, uh, Macy's integration. That That is a, a combination of two, the two companies working together, uh, Braintree and PayPal. So it's a common ground. Well, not to mention that, uh, Brian, that they also have uh, the native PayPal app as far as the uh, Braintree offering is concerned. So you know, previously it was Visa, MasterCard, what have you. Now you can have PayPal payments as well. So that's an added bonus yes. for, for clients, you know. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, even though it's an older brand and many people just kind of discount it, you can't discount the tremendous amount of volume that's going through that, uh, you know, existing PayPal infrastructure. It is growing. It is doing wonderfully by any uh, under underlying matrix. 
So I don't think it's going to be something that um, Braintree is going to regret or PayPal is going to regret keeping these particular infrastructures the way they are. In fact, I think uh, synergistically Brain, uh, Braintree having the ability to aggressively pursue individual markets has, uh, has done well, very well for the company. You think we'll see a, a unified product somewhere down the line? We kind of see the beginning of that with their one solution, their one click. But I think we'll see convergences. I more see the singularity coming to Zoom and uh, Venmo. I see that uh, they are destined to become a cross-border and uh, in-country sort of payment scenario that touches each other in, in a remarkable way. There's some great synergies that can be had there. I talk yeah, to a lot I, of people I, in the I, financial world about that. I, w- I would agree. I, I, I would see Venmo taking the or adopting the role of what Zoom has, you know, into the Venmo app and uh, being able to make payments. Uh, or maybe they'll just keep Zoom separately. Because off late, if you read all the news articles coming out on PayPal, Venmo, you know, Braintree, Zoom isn't mentioned much, you know. It's, it, it's just that yeah. it's a periphery. Everyone knows that they've acquired it, but haven't heard much from them. And the company's doing incredibly well. It has. It's one of the reasons for the acquisition. I think they're keeping a low profile because they're building a scenario that uh, they don't really want to broadcast at this point. I think we're touching upon that, certainly. So I, I think you're going to see sort of an interesting way that this all evolves. So I have, an, I have another question with respect to all this, uh, you know, one touch and, you know, the fingerprint thing. Uh, what do you think about voice biometrics? How do you think they will play? Because eventually, if you look what Siri is doing, what M from Messenger is going to do, it's all about voice. So do you think we'll be seeing more voice-activated payments coming in? Absolutely. Um, part of what I looked at when I was at the Apple uh, event is how Siri will interface with Apple TV and the new Siri with future iOS devices. Something I I got kind of coined the term back in 2010, 2011 maybe, early 2011, is voice commerce. And this is before Apple even acquired Siri. And as soon as they acquired it, you know, it, it all started to make sense. The idea is it makes a lot of sense to be able to interact with your smart devices for commerce purchases. And we're seeing that obviously with Amazon Echo and the Alexa system. That's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, my family's addicted to the Alexa system. Uh, It's just, uh, or the uh, Echo system. I mean, you just tell Alexa to order whatever you're missing. And I think we talked about that last show. So, yeah, there's a definite case. From that angle, as far as authentication and identity, there's some data scientists that I've been working uh, with for years that have sort of a trepidation about the possibility of voice. Uh, you know, the, the problem is it's fairly easy to duplicate certain voice inflection patterns. And so voice recognition as far as unlocking your device as opposed to fingerprint or another biometric has some challenges. And I know recently there's been a lot of talk about that. Was that more what you were talking of? Uh, yeah, yeah pretty much. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So uh, next big news, I think, is Stripe Relay. Amazing, amazing stuff. Uh, it's uh, it's a, sort of a big step forward for the company. And it's actually the most apparent manifestation is obviously within Twitter commerce. And it just makes the placement of buttons in certain 
situations uh, many times easier. It's certainly not a new thing in and of itself. Buy buttons have been around since PayPal's uh, first couple of months of existence. And um, it just hasn't been able to have the right partnerships. Certainly, you could embed to some level uh, commerce scenarios within Twitter and Facebook. And Facebook always uh, obviously has its own scenario. But the downside has always been it was whisking to some other unknown location. You're, ta- you're, you're ta- taken out of your media. And with the partnership between Stripe and uh, Twitter, you're basically an overlay within your, you know, your current browsing environment. If uh, they play their cards right, both companies, I believe it's going to be a very powerful uh, situation for them. Yeah, I mean, I think it makes it makes a lot of sense when you listen to the simple fact that you know we've all dealt with the situation when you have a slow <clears throat> shopping cart, uh, it's linked to the phone, it breaks, that you know whatever the the error is on the developer side. But all that fragmented building just leads to inefficiencies on the checkout process. Sure. And the checkout process is shopping cart. Why no one no one cares about that, right? When you buy a shirt or shoes or whatever you're buying, you really want the product. And once you've committed to purchasing it, now it's just friction. And reducing that friction, I think, is what Stripe is just so focused on. Um, and really, it shouldn't be a, a necessarily as long as you have it white labeled and branded to your store, which is not that challenging. Then it's it's a no brainer, I think, for developers and companies to use. Yeah, there there is there is a whole lot of complexity within organizations for them to look at using different sorts of channels for commerce. So that is a challenge. I mean, you know, if somebody says, "Hey, let's start selling on Twitter," in in say Macy's, who happens to be, I think, one of their partners, you know, all of a sudden you have a whole series of individuals within that company starting to make decisions on technology that didn't make before. Mm-hmm. So it, it becomes challenging for a tech company to communicate in that space. I think they're doing wonderfully. It is interesting to see Stripe being utilized in such a manner with Jack Dorsey running uh, Twitter at this point. A lot of people look at Square working in that direction with Square Market and not being uh, selected back when... Uh, that's interesting. Running. Do you think there's a conflict of interest that's apparent? You know, Does he actually um, lead the, direct, the company down that direction? Well, all I can say is that there is there is tensions within all payment startups about their turf being touched upon. I see it firsthand because I'm doing a lot of experimentation with Stripe, and a lot of people are kind of concerned about that. Um, you know, basically, the world is sort of divided between, in startup community, Stripe is doing online and uh, Square is doing retail. Are actually very false and misleading for a future yeah. that we're running into, and, and uh, if founders are taking that position, woe to them. I mean, if they're looking at the world, you know, as well, we'll be in this space or we'll be in that space. I think it's a it's a bad uh, scenario. Yeah. So I would think if you're running Twitter and you're also running a payments company, you might be looking with a slightly jaded eye uh, across the bow at, at Stripe. So I, I think it makes interesting. Um, interesting tension uh, I have some inside pool about it but I can't really disclose it, it let's just say like everything there's a lot of high drama taking place in the background uh, and it shouldn't be there but we're human beings so getting back to Stripe Relay I, I think at the end of the day you're looking at uh, really the fact and I, I think you make it a really, really good point Mike is 
most purchases within Twitter are probably going to, going to take place on a mobile device. And the old paradigm of shifting into the browser and then dumping into whatever tiny, you know, uh, non-responsive screen that you're getting. I mean, there's a lot of shopping carts that are not responsive website design, and it just gets ridiculous. I mean, all of a sudden you're dealing with a three-and-a-half-point type, and you're, you're zooming and clicking trying to fill out a field. Now, Apple's going to solve that. I mean, by the way, I mean, let's just put it this way. Safari will have versions of Apple Pay that are beyond the iCloud keychain that we're currently seeing. So that's one way it's going to be fixed. Another way is buttons like this or in pay environments like this. Mm-hmm. It's very responsive design. It's very quick. Uh, I made a purchase. To, well, I actually made two purchases thanks, thanks to Patrick. He did a retweet. I clicked on him and I go, hey, what the heck? So <laughs> I, I, I gave one for the cause. Nice. And, uh, I will I will be sporting a new a new pair of shades uh, because of that. Yeah. It was a very very simple very simple uh, scenario. I don't know if you guys had a chance to try it as have just you did. Run really so smooth. You're just doing it right on Twitter's page. I mean, you don't go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, and and I got to say that at some point we're probably going to see this every place. It's not like one company is going to do it and nobody else is going to do it. It's going to be every place. Mm-hmm. And uh, Stripe is uniquely positioned to get there. I got to say, we talked about Braintree. Braintree is uniquely positioned to get there. I know of three startups that are, you know, and they're all in stealth mode that are definitely positioned to get there. It's something they've been working on actually for quite a long time. So it's going to be a very hotly competitive uh, area. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Fights around to your favorite topic. You know, I couldn't even believe it. You guys suggested this, but the Kardashians Go Mobile app gets hacked immediately after it comes out. So Uh, I love stories like this. Over to you guys to discuss that. Uh, All I can say is you got to watch your back door. (laughs) (laughs) Got to protect your assets. Yeah. No, it's great. I think these are hilarious stories, Uh, and these are probably just great examples of when people who have no sense for building tech, you know, jump in. And there's a lot of value. I think there was 600,000 emails that were stolen. Um, and uh, and IDs, I guess. Uh, I know they were hashed, but, I mean, either case, it's going to be very interesting what happens. Yeah, and from what I take it, as soon as it was, it was deployed, it was a pretty uh, – <laughs> it was almost like launching with your pants down, I guess, in yeah. layman's terms. Um, yeah. It wasn't the most secure app that they've launched ever. But, hey – <laughs> but it makes 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 you think that you know if Braintree has 154 million cards on file, imagine what would happen if they went out, if someone hacked into that. Or Apple, Apple's or Apple. got one billion cards on file. How secure is? I mean, it's a bit of a tangent, but how secure is the Apple Vault? You know, is that Fort Knox, or are they just as secure as anyone else's Patriot? Let's look at it this way: all forms of security, if given enough time and talent and money, are breachable. That's an absolute fact, and that's the world we live in. Inside so, knowledge as well, you know. So there are certain things hackers just don't know about how the exactly. vaulting system works, etc. So, and I guess Apple will keep it out of the public eye or even Apple the private eye. Apple has been amazing. I can tell you a little bit about it, and that is they have. Let's look at it. Some the key is held by dozens of individuals, and no individual has the elements of a single. 
critical key. It's very much like the old nuclear ready uh, ready situation we had in the United States. You know, you would have ultimately three keys, and you know, hey, they had to be turned. Uh, exactly isn't that multi-sig? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds interesting, huh? Uh, you're, you're seeing you're seeing that kind of um, scenario at Apple. I, I that if Apple get, ever gets hacked to that level, the it's world the end is of the gonna, world. Yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. end of the world because they yeah, yeah. they've done. Everything I think humanly possible to secure those credit cards, even more so than payment companies I know. Uh, you know, here's the other thing. There's a lot more hacks going on with payment companies and payment cards than anybody is aware of. There are rules and regulations on what can and, sh- and should be dis- disclosed, and some are just not getting disclosed. Um, it has a lot to do with whether or not it would create a problem for everybody in the industry. And let's just say that that has taken place a number of times. Some very famous companies have been hacked and and extortion. So no, I think uh, one of the reasons is if it's an in, if it's an internal hack where customer data has not been lost, they are not obligated to report it. Or if it's a financial loss which the company can cover internally through their you know, own uh, books, etc., they don't have to report it. But if customer data has been breached. I think CFT, uh, the Consumer Protection Financial Bureau, have, might just come into play over here. Although I can't be sure of that, but you know, if it's if it's credit, if it's my card data that gets compromised, they have a fiduciary duty to inform me. You know. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. yeah, it's also a little silly to me to to, to to think that people are so concerned about their credit cards being stolen, with, with the understanding that every credit card has. A, a fraud protection program. Like if, if someone steals my credit card and goes and buys a bunch of stuff, it's not on me, right? So I think the credit card companies are the ones who are most concerned about uh, hacking. Well, well, let's look at it this way. And this took place a whole lot during the Target breach. Not everybody has a credit card. A lot of people are using a debit card. A debit card is an instant, potentially instant payment yeah, mechanism debiting your checking account. That's so so I, had a, I had a good friend. Um, it was a single mom uh, who was part of that breach and didn't know it. This was before it became news and before they disclosed it. She called me up crying that she could not access her bank account. All of her money was gone. Knowing that I was in payment, she asked me if I can shed some light on it. I called the banker. We did a three-way conversation. He said, listen, you know, 900 and some odd dollars is gone. I go, the woman can't pay her rent and there's other things that are going on. She has a young child. We need to fix this. She didn't do those transactions. Obviously, she's not in those parts of the world where these transactions took place, said, well, we're investigating, can take up to two weeks. So would they reimburse that? Or is that- they did, they yeah, did okay. but it took, her, it took that particular bank one month, even after it was public knowledge. Are they to obliged the to back. do that? Is that part of the agreement that they will if it's stolen? It, it, it's, it's really down to the $50 and when it's reported, you know, you're liable for $50 potentially. You know, the big thing is, a lot of people feel that they're more secure using a debit card in, a, in an untrusted environment. That's what? absolutely the opposite no, it of couldn't true. Couldn't be further than the truth. Yeah, who yeah. believes that? <laughs> the best well, thing there is there are pre- people that believe no, that they think it's no, more. The best secure. thing is sad. Prepaid card, my friend. That's the best. Of thing. course, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But let's just look at it this one way. If um, if if you're using a payment system and it becomes breached. 
you as a consumer have a lot of hassle factor you might have to deal with. You might have reoccurrings that you have to readjust. Uh, you might have uh, card on file that don't get readjusted correctly. So it, it, it is not a sim- simple thing. It also may be a precursor to a identity crime. Yeah. You know, one, I think, one, one interesting topic that doesn't, doesn't often get discussed is the psychological effect of these hackings, which I think may even have a larger implication long-term than the, the technical loss in data and the, you know, pain and cost that happen, when it happens. You know, Brian, you're obviously a big fan of the Kim Kardashian app. I know you've used it many oh, times. Yeah. Is I After heard. they got hacked like this, do you think people who use the app are going to be less likely to go into the next app because they fear that this may happen again? And I wonder how that happens on yeah. sort of macro scale, which that's, that's the bigger now, problem. Now, Mike, I'm fully behind you on this. Uh, uh, the uh, Kardashian app is an example of what we're taking for granted. Um, let's just say like, if I'm in the greater web experimenting on sites, I'll use passwords and IDs and uh, email addresses that pretty much let me know where that data is coming from. And one of the ways I've been able to detect some of the hacks that have taken place is by seeing certain email addresses. I'll give you a little secret. Let's just say you have a Gmail account and you want to be able to log in on a new website and use your existing Gmail account. Here's a little power user scenario. Put a plus and whatever number you want next to it. So you can do plus one, plus two, plus 29. It'll still come to your Gmail account, but it'll be a unique identifier. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so, obviously, it can become unwieldy, but if you use that particular mechanism, over time, what you can do is build this spreadsheet and say, okay, that's who I gave that email address to. And then you can, if you want, associate what is pretty much a low-priority uh, low you know, passcode to that account, and then, boom, you got a, uh, uh, a way of tracking. And, you know, quite, a, quite surprising one day, a, a payment company... You know, uh, I got an email, and it, I know only gave that to one payment company, and I said, whoa, you guys, I think, got hacked. I contacted their security, and I go, how did you know? I go, I'm not the hacker. I just got one of my <laughs> unique e- emails. Yeah. And, you know, they kept it off the radar screen. I don't know how. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of politics and favoritism involved in some of it. But at the end of the day, it is, um, it is worrisome. Psychologically, you know, between this, Ashley Madison, and a lot of the other type of sites that have uh, been exposed, you know, even even Adobe site. I mean, Adobe site was a huge uh, uh, cathartic wake up call for people who were just watching this from the side because, you know, you have people using PDFs and all sorts of cloud services, and that affected countless. I think it's probably still the biggest. Uh, hack that had, uh, as far as IDs being mm-hmm. stolen so far. Yeah, I agree. So you got you got to assume that this is just going to happen. I mean, how would you feel? How would you feel if some of your choice passwords are now unusable? How many sites? It's do you actually it's it, we we force everyone in our company to use. I mean, almost thirty people now use Dashlane uh, to protect passwords, and okay. essentially it just uses a you know simple password generator. Uh, which makes a non-human readable password. So that I think is a good step that if you can implement, uh, it's it's scary to think how many people don't do that and they probably have the same password for a hundred different websites. So I mean, <laughs> I don't know, man. It's, I, it's crazy. I think that's the the barrier. That's the low hanging fruit. Um, yeah. All right. So we got uh, Macy's. Let's talk about Macy's wow. next. So uh, Macy's with some innovation on the storefront. 
now the headline is now they offer PayPal to customers online, in store, and on mobile. And I like it. It shows a first step towards uh, you know finally. I think I remember in, when we were working on Zing Checkout and we were thinking you know any minute now Macy's, Nordstrom's, all these major yeah. retailers are going to roll out with their own you know <laughs> in store uh, mobile solution. And what you have to realize this stuff just takes years with these big guys. Years. So they probably went through a few pilots at different locations, but now they, they launch it in a big way. Um, so it says, it says uh, you know, they're joining Eat24, Overstock, um, that have OneTouch enabled. And have you, what, what are your thoughts on OneTouch? Well, I think it's an amazing idea. Uh, again, it's, it's not unique or new. I mean, the implementation is sort of new. And specifically, if we look at what's going on with Macy's, it's, it's a wonderful way that this can be deployed they're using the old uh, terminology called omni-channel omni-commerce and mm-hmm. it's uh, another buzzword which i'm really not a fan of. is that why paypal won by the way you know did, who else bid bid for this contract uh, besides paypal because paypal I don't, think there, I don't think there was anybody else i think paypal actually approached macy's to be frank about it and said look what we can do for you they have a phenomenal sales team and again, I, you hear me talk. Yeah, you, you hear me talk about this all the time. And startups are like, all right, how many people are in your payment startups? Oh, 29, 50, 100, 300, 900. How many salespeople? Oh, we got Joe. You know, you know got one guy. Like, what the <laughs> hell are you guys doing? What are you guys doing over there? Oh, well, we're an engineering technology company. I go, well, you won't be for long. Because, so, you know, again, that's my little t- tirade. So they, they, I believe from my, you know, perspective from what I've heard, and I've got some inside information uh, on the Macy's <laughs> side specifically, that they were approached about this. And their eyes were, were wide open. The idea that you can do a search on, you know, within the Macy's app or on the website, say for sunglasses or socks or whatever, and then wind up in the store and you're now in that same experience online in the store. You know, there's going to be a lot of ways this is going to work itself out. But the idea is you have this continuity of being able to do a transaction either from an in-store experience online or vice versa. I think it probably works in most people's minds today a little easier that you were in the store, you remembered you liked something, and now you can buy it online. Uh, but I bring up the other one first because I really think the reverse is ultimately going to be the, tr- the truism. I think at some point we will reach a zenith where individuals will just are sick of just buying in a isolated online environment and they want to go and interact with their with their goods. And Macy's, Nordstrom's, and all the old line retailers, if they wake up to the opportunity of showcasing these products correctly, uh, you're going to see a lot more people coming out of their bedrooms and, and interacting, especially yeah. certain demographics. So it's, it's a great move forward, I think. It still feels like, you know, I think 10, 15, 20 plus years from now, we're going to look back and think it was just such a stone age uh, technology. Oh, yeah. I think just the ability to sell <laughs> online and on your phone is just so basic that it's not, it's not, you're not growing sort of the, the, the GDP. I think where you start selling more things is when, you know, you offer the convenience and sure some people convert that wouldn't have converted. But imagine if you can go on in person try some things out and you order a bunch of things that are online in the inventory at some other location, you know, that sort of experience doesn't exist. You're, you're most, in most cases, Macy's, every other retail will limit you to the inventory they have on stock. And there's not a good transition from in-store uh, desire to online purchasing. You know, you're sort of told, you, even, you know, go home and order this. And you're like, oh, I don't really, I'm not going to do that. You, you know, Mike, 
you know, Mike, you make an interesting point, and this has been tried, but I, I, I know of one company, who, again, is a startup who doesn't want to really talk too much, but I can talk to this. Uh, the idea that you're in a Macy's and Macy's has inventory throughout, you know, X number of stores and online, and the fact that you're only limited to buy what's on the rack is ridiculous. So how do you solve this problem? You solve this problem with a uh, monitor about six and a half feet high and about three and a half, four feet wide. Four feet, I think, unfortunately, is going to be the standard because of where we are in America today. And it becomes a mirror. And that mirror allows you to try on virtually anything that's on any uh, shelf within Macy's. Mm -hmm. Now, people are saying, well, that's been done before and it's not really all that interesting and compelling. That's because we're looking at version beta 005.1. The version 1.0 of this technology, the stuff that will really be out in the, uh, in the real world, is phenomenal. So you stand in front of it, you have a virtual try-on, and within, within minutes, uh, you've maybe gone through 20, 30 different items that are not even in the store. You press something, whether it's on your personal device or on the monitor itself. And it's going to be at your house by the yeah, time you get home. That's brilliant. See, that, that's great. <laughs> that's where it's going. That, yeah. And there's no doubt. Corning glass meets payments, right? Exactly. Exactly. And, and I'm telling you, and I, I think Faisal, when we talked uh, before the Apple announcement, which thankfully they did everything we talked about, so 100%. Um, the, the big screen is going to become much more pervasive. I mean, I'm working on uh, half a dozen apps right now for uh, Apple TV. And all of them are commerce-based and merchant-based, by the way. The Apple TV is the lowest-cost iOS device in history. And a lot of people don't see that platform. Now, yes, you don't have web services. Thank you, Apple, for not trying to make yet another web service interface on TV. doesn't need to do that. But I'm, I'm going to just put this out there. What does the world look like if a business machine is built on the least costing iOS device. And what happens when it's tied to a big screen? There's a whole lot of things that go on there, and uh, I hope to be involved in that. I, mm-hmm. I think it's uh, one of the next transformations. Yeah, they'll give you a call if they know what's good for them. Yeah. Faisal. Okay. So uh, next thing, Android Pay, available for Wells Fargo customers. What do you think about that? Wow. Well, Android Pay is going to be mirroring what Apple did. And a lot of and, people, and not to mention, twenty uh, ninth is coming. So Google is having its uh, I/O event at that time, date, I believe. Yeah, we're going to see a lot of surprises from Google and payments. I'm telling you right now. I, I think, you know, a lot of people have been <clears throat> sort of counting them out and as as being boring. Uh, you know, I got to say they have been really good at swinging and adopting the idea that they tried NFC and I would say by anybody's accord failed at it and then Apple sort of led the way the proper interaction of NFC should be you mm-hmm. know working with everybody within the ecosystem not going against them that you know again this is what I talk about salespeople I talk about innovation and payments why in the heck would you want to work against anybody in the infrastructure it's ridiculous if you really are solving a problem People are going to gravitate towards your payment solution because of its virtuality and the fact that you work with everything. It's tempting, though. I mean, it's greed is what it is. It's, it, greed, and it, it's greed, it's immaturity, 
it's people buying what I call the disruption paradigm, which isn't Clayton Christensen yeah. disruption. There is no disruption in payments, and period. Just, and and specifically, you know, just to clarify, so Apple's basically saying to all the uh, merchant processors, we're not going to compete with you. We're going to allow funds to go through your pipeline, and we're just going to provide the technology solution that interfaces with our consumers. So Exactly. Yeah. So they did well, not, not just that. They also are looking at, you know, zero liability. If you made a payment with Apple Pay and fraud mm-hmm. happens, you know, you're not paying anything, period. The bank is going to take care of it and, you know, that's it. Uh, they're not issuing. This- they're not issuing credit. They're not issuing yeah. merchant accounts. They're not even issuing the gateway or the infrastructure. It- they're... They're, they're, they're much deeper. And when I was like, you'd have to imagine internally the, the converse, I'd imagine the data is just so overwhelming with uh, lack of fraud. I mean, if it's really on your fingerprint and that's the only way to use Apple pay, like think about the difference between that and you having a credit card, you know, even last night at dinner, I was, uh, I, I was telling somebody, you know, in Europe, it's very rare to give your credit card to someone and then they go and run it on their own machine oh, yeah. you know, behind the desk. They just bring the little terminal to you. So that it's just such a major risk uh, multiplied by millions of people that I, I bet Apple's going in there with all the trump cards. You know, they have the ace in the pocket saying, look, we have close to we have one one hundredth of what your fraud is like with plastic cards. Um, oh, Mike, you, you could have been on the team for Apple speaking to Visa and MasterCard in 2012. You know, a lot of people were asking me in 2012, well, why would Apple do this? Why would the card companies do it? And, you know, I couldn't expose everything Apple was saying, but a lot of people were saying, why would Apple make any money? Why would the card companies give the money back? Well, the, the slide deck was very simple. You have X number of billions of dollars in fraud. If a 5% cardholder penetration converted to Apple Pay, you would be gaining this much more revenue. We want one small slice of that revenue and savings. So they're, they're not really getting, a, this is a net positive to the card institutions. They're yeah. making money on yeah. the fact that Apple Pay is that much more secure. Yeah, the only people so who lose Apple's is approach it the crook. right way. Yeah. Well, what, who loses are payment startups who, who had dreams of cr- trying to create their own wallet and didn't want to talk to anybody and said that we're disruptors. Yeah. They lost millions of dollars. But they sort of but, don't well, exist. That's real money. I mean, they never were a well, player. And the, the people who were a player were the guys who stole credit cards. And those are the guys who yeah, are now going to lose. You know, you tell it to the investors who lost millions of dollars on uh, abstractions and distractions. You know, it, it, somebody lost money there. And yeah, they're investors. But, you know, this stuff... This stuff is kindergarten. They should have known. They should have listened to people with empirical praxis on it and said, hey, listen, put your money and your talent into something that you can really change the world about. You know, don't put your money and talent in something that you're what? You're going to go to Visa and say, we're going to we're going to poke you in the eye. It's not going to work. We're going to bankers and say we don't. And that's if anything, the early uh, 2010 to 2013 payment disruption teaches us is that disruption doesn't come about in payments in the way that anybody imagined. Even Bitcoin, obviously, that's not a disruptive technology, really. Uh, it, it is definitely a, a, an so evolution. Let me, let me ask you this. Do you, think, uh, do you think the future looks where there's sort of this duopoly with Apple Pay and Android Pay, where there's, there's machines, maybe yes. Micros, and all these guys make machines that are only compatible with those two providers? So it further eliminates guys yeah. like Windows and, and Microsoft um, no. from the market? No, you know, it, it, I hear what you're saying, Mike, but, you know, it's actually, it's actually Apple leading with open source. The open source here is NFC. 
And like I've been saying ever since I've been talking about NFC, NFC is not a captive of the carriers. And that's what everybody thought. When, when you brought up NFC, oh, Brian, that's the carriers. No, it has nothing to do with them. It's an open source technology. Apple took USB. They took FireWire. They took all of these different technologies and they made them popular. Whether they've existed before or not is irrelevant. Car existed before, uh, you know, Henry Ford, but he made it popular. You know, computer existed before Steve Jobs. He made it popular. Touchscreen on a phone was there before Steve Jobs. It just didn't work really nice. It required a stylus. That's another story. But, you know, so what's going to happen is you have Android Pay on Team Android. You have Apple Pay on Team Apple. And then you have this vast, fertile ground for innovation. Why does it only have to be a, a, a cell phone or a smartphone that's interacting with that NFC machine. If you know that the common element at all merchants at some X date in the future is going to be NFC, then now you've solved the Internet of Payments problem. Now you have the, uh, this incredible opportunity for innovation. And uh, it's going to be powerful, powerful stuff. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um, and Android Pay is just a first step. And let's not, let's not dilute that. We talked a whole lot about Apple. And uh, what, what, what essentially happened at Google is Google said, oh, yes, yes, we've been down this road, but Apple has popularized it. The difference is the profit sharing has changed. Apple got in there early, and everybody says that they twisted arms on bankers. There was no arm twisting involved. That's somebody's fanciful ex post facto analysis. The bankers were more than willing to work with Apple. I talked to them. Uh, Apple was more than willing to work with bankers. I talked to them. And uh, it was a love fest. They sat down, and if anything, Apple was being quite nice. They were taking only 15 basis points when it was potentially saving the bank magnitudes, orders of magnitude uh, more if they were even to make 10% penetration in credit card volume. Imagine if we took that many numbers outside of the ability for hackers to gain access to and tokenize it, 10%, which is a low number and it's quite achievable in the next three years. Uh, let's be conservative, five years. Tremendous amount of money for these payment card issuers by taking that much fraud out of the system. But there's more. There's synergistic effects. We're, we don't need to you know, talk about that, but there's more. So pay is built on that. They're just not making the same amount of money they are making money, by the way. I, I think some uh, some individuals are looking at Google making zero on this with uh, sort of uh, insane. So watch Android Pay have the same adoption pattern that Apple has over time, probably not as fast, maybe uh, perhaps not as glamorous. But you'll see every bank that issued an Apple Pay ID, uh, you're going to see have an Android Pay ID. So yeah. you're going to see support across uh, the bow. So yeah. last five minutes left, uh, Clover Health. So it's a data-driven health insurance startup that raised $100 million very recently. Wow. Mike's got to talk million. about it. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is great. Uh, this, this is really exciting for me personally. I just finished reading a, a very relevant book called Catastrophic Care, um, why, we think, why Everything We Think We Know About Healthcare is Wrong. is by this guy, David Goldhill, and it was just really eye-opening as to the, the structure of the healthcare system in the U.S. and why we pay more than any other country and we have something like the, the 20, you know, 20 some, 20th uh, uh, value system or, or quality of healthcare. And the overall overarching theme is that the end consumer, the end person that is paying for the care is not you or I, 
but it's the, the the employers, the employers of of our companies that offer health insurance, and health insurance companies are the real players in the space. They really dictate where funds are going to. Um, and sort of the reason why everything's so expensive is there's no downside to higher costs. So if you're in a hospital and you're a doctor and you charge a patient, you know, ten thousand dollars for some post-acute operation, that consumer is going to say, oh, no problem, right? I'm not paying it. Just go. I pay my $200 copay, and then the insurance handles it. But at the end of the day, of course, insurance is paid for by you and I, whether it's withholding from the company, whether it's out of our W-2 pay stub. You know, it comes out of our pockets in the end of the day. And seeing a company like Clover raise $100 million is a great step into seeing a world where health insurance companies are more intelligent. And I think it wouldn't surprise me if we see Google jump into the space eventually. And essentially all we're doing is aggregating the data and the risk to provide insurance that makes more sense. Um, these insurance companies, I can tell you firsthand from speaking with them, they don't get it. You know, They're very uh, closed-minded and offset by the old ways of doing things. So you know, in reading through this article, I don't know these guys personally, but seeing what they're doing is really exciting to to. Uh, particularly put data around uh, things. So they have the health records. They can crunch things like basically one example they gave, which I really liked, is uh, you know if you if we know something is on a 30-day refill, say a prescription, we haven't seen a claim in 35 days, we know they are taking it regularly. So you can use little bits of data, little clues um, in the overall machine. And, uh, yeah, I hope more companies get into it and put pressure on sort of the four macro, the four large insurance companies in space. So how do you think this is going to play out into the future? I mean, your synopsis of the book is pretty powerful. I got to read this. I mean, you think it's a good read for anybody across the Yeah, the yeah, country? it's very it's 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 very layman's terms. So how do you think this is going to play out? What was what was the outcome yeah. of the book if So uh, uh, uh yeah, I mean one, one interesting just point to know historically is that in World War II, one of the benefits that companies used to attract talent was offering this aggregated health insurance pool. So they would say, not only are we going to pay you a salary, but we're going to offer you health insurance. And then they had the leverage of having you know, 100, 200,000 employees where they could get lower rates from health insurance companies. But the interesting thing and unfortunate thing in this country is that health care and health insurance have sort of merged together. So if you have like health care is the actual receiving of, of value of care, health insurance is insurance in healthcare is not actually insurance. Insurance in any other industry is to protect you, you know, homeowner's insurance in case my house gets hit by lightning. You know, I'm one out of a thousand houses who that happens to, and I can essentially mitigate that risk. Sure. But it's very uh, expected operations in, in health insurance. So if I know I'm going to get whatever procedure every year, why would that be covered under the health insurance? Um, so I think there's just a, a change in psychology that happens. But I think also you as a consumer can go direct to purchase your own health insurance. As a, think of it like this. A, a simple way is when companies decide who to hire, they decide the cost to hire that person, not the wage they pay that person. Because if you pay them you know, $100,000 a year and you have a $15,000 health insurance cost that you have to also fork out, if I can go direct to someone who doesn't require that health insurance and doesn't want it, that's much more appealing to me as employers. Now, the only way to do that is if you allow people to go direct to health insurance companies and get their own claims. And traditionally, this has been just too expensive for people uh, to do this, and health insurance companies want to work through employers because there's just a lot more money involved. Um, so companies now, like this, I think, go direct to consumers 
Um, Mike, how does this affect uh, the Affordable Health Care Act, uh, Obamacare? I mean, it, how, how does that uh, contrast? So I, one, of the, one of the biggest implications of the ACO and uh, uh, the Affordable Care Organization, Affordable Care Act, ACA, is the reimbursements from hospitals. So you're changing the incentive structure around fee for service to fee for value. So typically it's always been I perform operations and I get paid as the doctors, the hospitals get paid. So they want to do as many as they can. They want to make money on the actual procedures. Um, now there's an incentive structure so that you're measuring the performance or uh, the improvement of patients after they have the, the surgeries. So you don't see wasted surgeries. I, li- I agree with the change of perspective, but I, you know a lot of the way it's executed, essentially the government just offered another publicly uh, mandatory insurance policy, which is not the most intelligent way to do that. So I now, think, Mike, we, yeah. we, might go, we might go over here, but you, you, you started me on something that uh, uh, in, in, I've been thinking about in the back of my mind, and I'll just throw it out there. Right. Today, there are insurance companies that are monitoring your car activity, right? They, they plug a dongle into your uh, smart jack in your car, and they monitor how fast you're going. Oh, I use one, Metro Mile. It's great. Yeah, okay, Metro Mile, right. What, what does the world look like when we're wearing a biometric uh, device attached to us personally? It knows who we are, and it monitors our health choices from the food we eat, the activity level, whether we're smoking, doing other things that are illegal and uh, perhaps against our bodies. What happens to insurance when all of a sudden those who never see a doctor and are you know, just incredibly healthy – are able to be, you know, quantified in that manner. Do you see a world coming to that, and is it a world you want to live in? Yeah, it's interesting. I think one of the key blockers in, in innovation, which is an interesting one, is the aggregation of health records. So everyone always says, I can't believe health records are still on paper. I can't believe they're fragmented and, and aggregated across the, you know, the entire country, and they're not centralized in one database. But I think, you know, yeah, that's to our conversation before, yeah, the reason they aren't, is that that data is just so incredibly personal and valuable. If it were ever to be released publicly of everyone's health records, like it would be a just complete shit show. So I think the, uh, you know, going back to your point, if you have data around people, why would you opt into negative services? Why would I ever tell you, insurance company, that I smoke or that I don't exercise? So I think you're only, you know, you know what I mean? So you're basically skewing data for people who opt into the, positive aspects, which may be valuable, right? It may, it may um, be inter- Maybe there's a discount for exercising or for not smoking and things like that. I think that's... Well, I, I think at some... Yeah, I think at some future, it's going to be demonstrated that certain diets, certain lifestyle habits, uh, sleep patterns, I mean, even sleep patterns. I mean, a lot of my colleagues who uh, in the startup world uh, especially younger, don't really understand the value of sleep and uh, push it a little too hard. But, you know, there, it's absolute fact your regenerative, regenerative capabilities are only from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. If you go to sleep after those hours, I don't care where you are. It's got to be within your, uh, your, your cycle, your sun, sunset, sunrise cycle. If you go to sleep outside those hours, over time, uh, collectively, uh, you're going to have damage to your body, period. And I wish it wasn't that case, but it's a fact. So let's just say insurance companies, especially data-driven insurance companies, take this data, which might be controversial and uh, fringe today, and they know it's a fact, and they start internally modeling that and saying, well, this guy doesn't go to sleep until 3 o'clock in the morning. He ain't going to be around uh, to 60s <laughs> or 70s. He's going to reach you 
of health uh, criteria. So we're not going to give them, you know, this type of life insurance, and we're probably not going to give them this type of health insurance, but we're not necessarily going to tell them why. Whereas this guy is doing this, and his insurance is going to be a couple of pennies a day. Because he's probably never going to Sounds like my credit report. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to get that way, I believe. And I just think from a, from a sociology standpoint and, uh, and just a humanity standpoint, what is it all going to mean? Because they're going to be literally the haves and the have-nots. There are people who are making choices with their body right now that are going to pay with interest and dividends at some future date. This is not instantaneous. The things you choose today don't show up until 10 or 20 years later, and you'd never connect them. You'd just say, ah, that's my genetic lottery. Yeah. Nah, <laughs> it is, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's interesting yeah. times. Uh, well, I, I mean, I hate to, I don't want to go too long here, but I think the interesting implication is when you start to have these worlds converge at, okay, great, maybe you have this genetic predisposition that is going to cost insurance companies more, but what if you could change that? What if you could actually modify, uh, you know, your genes? What if you could use stem cells to sort of, um, I mean, now there's a, in, in China, they took, they did it with mice, but they took an organ, they scraped cells off it. They use those to turn into stem cells, and then they grew a whole other operating organ. So they've actually yeah. cloned uh, animals completely that are already living. So I don't know. It's a dark road that is a whole other conversation about how, you know, where that goes. And there's a lot more moral questions than there are technical challenging questions. Because um, we're at an interesting, you know, interesting I, I, point I, where we can do these things now. Yeah, and, and I think uh, you know, in our lifetimes, uh, I think we're going to see that. Faisal, you got to weigh in on this. What you know before we we uh, cast a uh, goodbye. Uh, what do you th- see from your perspective and health? Well, you especially know, I was, part of the world. I, I had to stub a cigarette out when you guys was talking. Qualify. But no, would you change your behavior? I, all right, so would, you have to wear a yes. dongle, uh, and, and this dongle essentially. Uh, reminds you that if you smoke next month, you're going to be paying this much yeah, more in premiums. Will so, that change yeah, behavior? Of course, yes, it will. See, some people won't. I, I brought this subject up to people who have been smoking for a very long yeah, time. Yeah, but statistically, if you change some, I'll just pay more. You know, I don't care. I, I, I want to enjoy my life. You know, it's it, it's everybody has this right. Well, Brian, if you look at it, it's already happening. You know, countries like Singapore, where the government dictates taxes on things, where they have socialized health care. Oh, yeah. So yeah. they're essentially saying, okay, we're paying a billion dollars from operations from smoking. What are we going to do? We're going to raise taxes on cigarettes and charge people 10 times more than they were paying and reduce the number of people who are smoking and thus reduce the cost in the health system. Same thing is in uh, Canada. Same thing is in the UK where people actually smuggle cigarettes. You know? yeah. yeah, that's what happens is it doesn't necessarily always change the behavior, uh, you know, taxing. Well, not no. I, I I say in a majority of the cases it does change behavior. I know some very close friends, very close smokers. They migrated to Canada, smoke free. Really? Yep. Hmm. And uh, and it's just way too expensive. Well, that too, and the cold outside because they have to go outside and smoke. <laughs> <laughs> That's Want to stop smoking? Move north. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we well, should dive in deeper. It's been a great week. Uh, we'll Absolutely. put this up, and then we'll connect next week. Till then, goodbye. Great. This was great. Talk to you soon, guys. Take care, guys. Bye. Bye. 
redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.